Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, June 21st. We begin with a conversation surrounding National Indigenous Peoples Day, which is held every June 21st. We hear the gripping personal story of Josie Napanak, residential school survivor and executive director of the Awatan Healing Lodge Native Women's Shelter. Over the past 15 months, we've heard the term COVID long haulers, those people that carry symptoms for months after contracting the coronavirus. But how much do you know about the health impact and symptoms that can hang around? We'll get some clarification from Dr. Alexandra Rendley from the Toronto Rehab Institute. Next, we continue our conversation on Lyme disease, in particular the chances of getting Lyme disease in our province and the resources available here in Alberta. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician, weighs in on this surprisingly controversial issue. And finally, it's another edition of Motivation Monday. This time out, we look at the connection between cycling and creating motivation to live your best life. We speak with Rochelle Love, Calgary-based cycling and triathlon coach, business owner and motivator. Well, today is National Indigenous Peoples Day, and it is the 25th anniversary of celebrating the heritage, diverse cultures, and outstanding achievements of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. Joining us now is Josie Napanak, who is a residential school survivor and executive director of the Awotan Healing Lodge Native Women's Shelter. Good morning, Josie. Thanks for joining us. Yes, good morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, Today is a day for us to listen and to learn. And I know you are a survivor of the residential school system, so it must have brought back a lot for you when you heard about those 215 children's bodies discovered in Kamloops. Can you tell us sort of what it it meant to you and and what you thought about when you heard the news? Yes, thank you. Um, Well, certainly when I heard the news, I was I was devastated, for lack of better words. It is uh, very, um, I felt like I was thrown up against the wall. Although I had known this uh, from my own residential schools back home, I knew that there were, uh, because quite often we would hear the stories about uh, the, the children who were, who were buried either under the church or somewhere around the, the property of the, of the church. And, um, um, so, so when the news came out, I guess I was feeling like finally, finally someone is, uh, has said it out loud and that there will be some, um, acknowledgement and perhaps those little ones will be able to go home. Although it isn't death, they will be able to go home and their families will have some closure. So for me, it was very devastating. It, it triggered my PTSD terribly. And, and it, it, it took, it took time. It took the last month or so just to, just to create my own sense of safety of where I am at this moment. Josie, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned your experience and, and you had known, uh, but at the same time, you know, it has not really come to light until the past uh, several weeks here in our nation, the scope of it. Was this a case that you thought it was so horrible that it might have only been happening where you were? Did uh, Was there any idea that it was so widespread back then? Well, at the time uh, when when I when I knew about the graves back home, uh, I I didn't know uh, very much about other residential schools or <clears throat> what was happening across the country because we just didn't have uh, you, uh, we just didn't have the infrastructure in our communities to to hear what was happening. 
Josie, we have heard a lot from people like you who have spent time in the residential schools. And I think sometimes it's it's almost too horrific and you just sometimes don't want to believe the stories. But can you tell us a little bit about your experience? I know you've said you have PTSD. I don't want you to get too deep into it if, if that's upsetting to you. But just so that we can understand it a little bit further as to as to what it was like for Indigenous people in these schools, the kids. <laughs> Well, I was uh, I went to two schools, and this was in Manitoba, and uh, I was uh, five years old when I was first, I say, forced in. And at that time, um, uh, English was my second language, and so when we spoke our uh, our traditional language, we were we were beaten because we were not allowed. Uh, we were not allowed to visit with our siblings, uh, even though they were in the same building. And uh, we were forced to eat food. And quite. And when I say forced, uh, that means that they either shoved it with a spoon down your throat or, uh, or at times spread it out throughout your hair. Um, so there was a lot of horrific things that happened. And, and it's only recently, I believe, that... Um, that we have, as Indigenous have started talking about um, about the residential school experience. And one of the things that I remember so profoundly is, um, uh, and I wasn't in the residential schools at the time because this is my my cousin and, and my uncles were talking about the fact that he had run away from the residential schools, although he was four miles from home. Uh, he ran away and uh, this was in um, April, <clears throat> and he fell into the a creek, and and um, uh, he he got cold, and he found a little haystack or a haystack to um, to bundle in, and he was found frozen mm. uh, in that in that haystack by my grandfather, who was his uncle, and and um, and uh, my uncle who was his dad, and even at that time, uh, families did not have a say in how. Uh, their children would be um, looked after uh, in death. And what had happened in this case was the body of this young boy, his name was Albert Nipanak, and he was 11 years old at the time. And so they put him in a wooden box and they brought him right into the classroom. And they said to the other kids in the in the classroom that if you run away, this will be you. Oh this is an example of what will happen to you if you run away. And and I remember the conversations with my uncles around that table because they were in that classroom oh. and and how devastating and how painful and the memories around that are are still so fresh today when we hear stories about the residential schools, the trauma and the pain, Mm -hmm. you learn to live with it. It becomes part of who you are. And the important thing that I always tell myself is, yes, there is lots of trauma, there is lots of pain, but let's not let it control who we are as individuals because we th- there is opportunity for us to move forward. There are healing programs. Mm-hmm. We have reclaimed language, culture, and ceremony. And so we can move forward in a good way. Yeah. Josie, uh, listen, we, we have uh, much more to cover with you. Can, can you hold on for two more minutes with us? Yes, absolutely. Good stuff. Today is National Indigenous Peoples Day, and we're lucky enough to have with us Josie Napanek, residential school survivor and executive director of the Awatan Healing Lodge Native Women's Shelter. Thanks again for uh, staying with us here, Josie. We appreciate it. No problem.
the conversation and today uh, important that we talk about it, but at the same time, it has really been in the spotlight over the past several weeks. Um, also in the conversation is Canada Day celebrations this year. What are your thoughts? Because there's been a lot of controversy surrounding whether or not we should be celebrating Canada Day in 2021. Well, I have made the personal choice not to celebrate this year. And and the reason why is because I have spent 13 years in the residential schools. And as a result, uh, I, I have lost so much. And, and I say so much because I, I cannot measure the, the, the relationships with family, first and foremost, the, the language. I mean, I still speak my language, but, I, but my children don't know the language. Um, many ways of the culture, which were forbidden by the Indian agents <clears throat> on the First Nations who forbid uh, anyone to, um, to participate in, uh, in culture or ceremony. Uh, the, the continued, what I call, genocide. The fact that I was removed from my home and forced into residential school and then forced into a second residential school where I suffered horrific abuses from physical abuse to sexual abuse to spiritual abuse is it, it's still too painful for me to to want to celebrate. This is what... Canada has done to me, or not necessarily the people of Canada, but the policies, the genocidal policies, the Indian Act, the paternalism, uh, the the racism that has um, perpetuated so much negativity in our lives, and and that and that negative negativity has been um, um, perpetuated in so many. Um, in so many spaces in this country. So I chose not to this year. I chose to remember the 215 children who's, um, who are in unmarked graves and for all the children across the country who never made it home, including my little cousin Albert, who didn't make it home. And for his memory, I chose not to celebrate this year. Josie, I said it at the beginning, today is a day for us to listen and learn, and we thank you so much for your time this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for joining Thanks. us. That is Josie Napanak, who is a residential school survivor, also the executive director of the Awotan Healing Lodge Native Women's Shelter. You can get more information at awotan, A-W-O-T-A-A-N, awotan.org. A new report from Fair Health in the U.S. shows nearly one quarter of people that contracted COVID ended up reporting new health problems more than a month after getting the virus. We wanted to find out exactly what some of those people may be struggling with now. So we're turning to Dr. Alexandra Rendley. She is a physician at the Toronto Rehab Institute working with what we call COVID long haulers, those who now have symptoms long after actually being infected. Good morning to you, doctor. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on today. Well, first off, how many of these patients are you seeing, those that we call these long haulers? Yeah, the estimates right now are between 10 to 20 percent of patients who have been infected by the virus are having ongoing symptoms. And that's uh, for a range of patients, be that very mild symptoms who were treated at home to patients that were in the ICU and had a prolonged hospital course. Dr. Renly, you mentioned the severity, you know, from mild to, to being hospitalized. 
give us an idea of the type of symptoms you're seeing. Seeing what are what are people being affected by? Yeah, we we look at the entire uh, patient. So from head to toe, we're looking at how their muscles are moving. We're finding that there's some general weakness or what we call deconditioning, causing some mobility issues or difficulty walking, even just getting up and completing tasks like getting dressed and making their own breakfast. There's a lot of fatigue. Uh, There's ongoing breathlessness and some difficulties with breathing that's ongoing after they're infectious. Uh, some patients are having some high and fast heart rate or a racing heart. Uh, and then we think about how the brain is working. So some memory and attention difficulties, what some patients are calling brain fog, difficulty switching tasks, and also some mood changes. We've seen depression, we've seen anxiety, some PTSD, especially in patients that were in the ICU. So each patient has a, a wide range of symptoms from maybe one to several. And have you found, doctor, any sort of rhyme or reason why one person might have, you know, certain breathing issues, for example, while someone else might mm-hmm. suffer the memory issues? Is, is, is there any sort of reasoning to be able to tie these things together? That's a great question. We do know that it's a complex multi-system illness, so affecting various parts of the body throughout. Um, A lot of research is happening right now to see if we can predict who might be more affected than someone else. All we know right now is that the initial severity is not a great indicator of how a patient's going to do down the road. And so right now we're just treating patients as their symptoms arise and as things are ongoing. Dr. Renley, thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Dr. Alexandra Rendley, physician at the Toronto Rehabs Institute. Every Monday, we have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Ted Jablonski, who is our on-call family physician. And last week, we focused on Lyme disease, symptoms, diagnoses, and treatments available. However, as we learned from Dr. J, there seems to be some controversy that swirls around Lyme disease in our province. So we thought we'd revisit the topic again this week. Hey, Dr. J, good morning to you. And following our conversation last week, we received this text. It says, my daughter was diagnosed seven years ago with fibromyalgia. And after four years of over-medication on pain meds, depression, and anxiety, someone suggested we get her tested for Lyme. We had to pay on our own to go to BC to get tests done and sent to Germany. As our family doctor said, she couldn't have Lyme disease. Tests came back positive and she was treated appropriately and is in remission and doing well. She has not been out of Alberta, so yes, you can get it here, and doctors need to stop underplaying the risks. What is your response to something like that, Dr. J? Well, as I said uh, last week, this is very, very controversial, and and that's the reality of it. Um, But I think I still believe, so uh, let me say this first. I actually, when I worked in Ontario, I actually dealt with people who had Lyme. Uh, So I actually had a number of patients. We treated them. They did actually very well. So I am a doctor who believes it exists. I believe there is treatment for it. And I have actually experienced it in my own professional career, um, of which is, is different than a lot of Alberta docs who have actually never seen a real case. Uh, so perhaps have more of a, you know, this maybe doesn't exist. It, it does exist. But if somebody's never had a tick bite that they're aware of, have never had a rash that they're aware of, have, have symptoms that are not consistent with Lyme, and have testing done in Canada, which is negative, it's really hard to believe they have Lyme. And this is where the controversy comes, that, that we don't have su- sufficient testing in Canada. So in Alberta, 
Uh, we have a submit a tick program I talked about last week. Mm-hmm. So you can actually show a picture or bring your tick in and actually have it identified to see is it truly a tick that carries Lyme or not. And then we do have blood testing done. There's a provincial test done out of Edmonton. And if that's positive or shows anything, it's sent to a federal lab in Winnipeg and, and further testing is done. So we actually have the full slate of testing in our country, which is quite accurate. So the notion that I have to send my blood privately to either a lab, and there's one in California and there's ones all over the world, but where I have to pay to get a test, which uses very, very unorthodox or controversial technique to, to get a result, that's where the problem is. And I, and I, and I you know, I feel for this, uh, the family and that the girl uh, who's had problems, and but I can't speak to actually mm-hmm. whether she had Lyme or not Lyme or etc. So we do have testing here in Alberta, and so... It, it, you know, is that ultimately, could that be what the problem was that the test got sent to another country and it came back as Lyme incorrectly? Because are you, you, you still, that's your belief as far as we understand here in this province, there is no Lyme disease. Well, there's no Lyme from uh, an Alberta tick. So yes, okay. you can get yes. Lyme if you were traveling. Right. So uh, to but be clear on that. In so the province. We will have patients in Alberta who have Lyme disease, but usually probably from traveling uh, elsewhere. But this, we can test. We do have sufficient testing. Uh, the, the controversy with the testing is early on, it, it uh, is not positive. So we're picking off antibodies, meaning the, the body's immune response to this uh, bacteria. So if you test within the first few weeks, it could be a negative test, and that's legitimate. It takes, unfortunately, weeks or months for that test to go positive. But we do have testing for that, and that testing is very accurate. So it's it's not only that nobody has anything figured out in our entire country and we have to send it to another country, um, to some very you know, unusual private lab that does very controversial testing that you have to pay for is, is extremely questionable, extremely questionable. And I really would, would say uh, you know, to all the folks out there, you don't have to do that. We do have appropriate testing in our country. Well, a very interesting and complex topic, so we appreciate you uh, talking to us yeah. about it over a two-week period. Thank you very much, Dr. J. Well, you're very welcome. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. In the latest installment of Motivation Monday, we wanted to introduce you to Rochelle Love, who is a Calgary cycling and triathlon coach who, due to the pandemic, started teaching classes online, ended up with people registering from as far away as Europe even. Well, Rochelle joins us now to talk about what motivating the women she teaches might actually help all of us. Good morning, Rochelle. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Hey, you teach women to get on a bike, maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time. So tell us a little bit first about Rise and Ride It. Uh, Rise and Ride is a program for women by women to get more women riding their bikes. Many people are content to carry on throughout their life not riding our bikes. And with so many people doing and getting on bikes through the pandemic, we thought, what an opportunity to really focus on women and get them out riding and comfortable on their bikes. All right. So you've uh, helped us out in joining us this morning to talk about your motivation. And I, I see a lot of parallels to what you do. So you have three points. And I want to start with this one the fear to start something new. Let's talk about that. And I think that you can apply that not just to bikes, but to life in general, couldn't you? Absolutely. I mean, any new experience comes with those fears and those doubts. 
but that shouldn't be a reason for missing out on them. People continually think what could go wrong, but not focusing on all the things that could absolutely go right and be amazing and come from that experience. Let's talk about tip number two. You've got to keep moving or or what? <laughs> or what you're going to fall over. We had a woman have that aha moment uh, last week where she said to the instructor, I have to keep pedaling or I'm going to fall over. Just like the great Albert Einstein said, we have to keep moving to find comfortable in our lives and be that, find that balance. So if we can keep moving forward in all these situations, we're going to be to the best of our ability, just like we're going to be able to ride a bike better. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, moving forward, and the bike is the perfect analogy, and actually, not so much an analogy, but real life. You ever tried sitting still on that bike? Yeah. Um, well, I did when I had the three-wheeler, but that's a different story. Uh, next, different story. next up, you say there are peaks and valleys. Okay, let's talk about those peaks and valleys and, uh, you know, the ups and downs in life. Absolutely. As we go, we know that we're going to be experiencing peaks and valleys. And and when we're riding a bike, those hills and those uphills and downhills, um, they will come and they will go. And we need to really embrace those peaks and know that when we're in those valleys, that will pass. Everything will come and go. And it's constantly peaks and valleys. And you'll learn to just appreciate those peaks a bit more. We really can compare riding a bike to real life. So what is it like when you get, you know, some women graduating from your course or or they may end up going into a, a triathlon, for example, what kind of feelings do they have afterwards in terms of being able to understand how they've been motivated and the positivity that comes out the other side? Well, just being able to see them gain that confidence and see it trickle over into every part of their life. So they've tried something new and now they're a lot more willing to try the next step. What's the next step? And I think that can translate to, you know, their work, their careers, their families, doing things with their kids. And it's just so rewarding for all involved to see. Rochelle, something that uh, you struck me when you're talking about point number two about you got to keep moving or you'll fall over. You said you were in the group, and that's one one of the things you you know uh, told uh, told the ladies. Um, you know, biking is at uh, its essence you're solo, like you're you're on that bike alone. But you know, in that instance that you gave that example for the importance of camaraderie and having somebody ride along with you and sharing an experience. How important is it to have people around us through these uh, peaks and valleys, and of course uh, to get through the fear. Oh, absolutely. And I think especially that's why when we came up with this program, our mission was to keep it uh, female centric and to have uh, those female instructors leading these women. Um, We find there's just a different dynamic with women supporting one another and the powerful tool that uh, that can be in that motivation and supporting each other um, can really push these women to new heights. Motivation Monday for sure. Uh, how do women get involved if they want to find out more, Rochelle? Uh, they can go to RNR Premier Events. That's rnrpremiereevents.com and check out our Rise and Ride uh, program. Rise and Ride, everybody. Not a bad idea for us all. Get up, get off your butt, get out there and have some fun. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. That is Rochelle Love, cycling triathlon coach, business owner, and motivator. Oh man, I love that. I love that it's Motivation Monday, and at the same time, mm-hmm. we've had to, we've had like certified motivational coaches, we've had business coaches, we've had authors, and to have somebody who 
takes women who, you know, have been on the bike before but elevates their game. That is a huge parallel. And whether you're a woman taking part in, you know, her events particularly or not, I think everybody can take some of the, the same lessons away and, and really, you know, on a Motivation Monday, maybe it, it kicks starts your day and your yeah. week and, and gets you thinking and gets you moving. And and ladies, if you're into it, wow, wow what, a, what a fun way to, to learn how to ride your bike if you've never yep. ridden a bike, you know, mountain biking, street, whatever it might be. Or getting into a triathlon because it can be that's huge and that's very daunting. But if you can do it with now other like mi- like minded people who just want to start off and get into it, cool idea. Got a great text surrounding this. It says, "I decided I wanted to do an Ironman when I was fifty. Mm. I'm not the world's greatest athlete, so I took swimming lessons at forty nine. Was able to compete uh, my Ironman in a good time. Anybody can do it there if they really go. want to. Just got to train hard. Well, I'm that's what I'm saying. This- you know, you don't have to be first. This and who cares me. if you're last? This gen- lady or gentleman, I'm not sure. Iron Man doesn't have to be a man. It can nope. be a woman. Um, it can be someone who's crazy because that's, <laughs> I mean, but this person's 49, started the swimming at 49 and yep. Iron Man at 50. Good for I'm you. I'm 49. So has the gauntlet been thrown down? Yes, it has. Get because off your ass, I Andrew Schultz. I have a hard time. I'm duck-footed. <laughs> I'm like a rock in the pool. You know where you can find me, at least. At the bottom. But there's always yeah, help there's, for you. And if you're at the bottom, there's only one way to go. That is a very Straight good up. point. <laughs> there's lots you can do. And, uh, you know, it's not that hard to get started. You just one foot in front of the other and take one day at a time. Andy, you can do it. I know you can. One year. Okay. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.